I'm Daniel Libet. This is the NM Fishbowl Podcast. It's Tuesday, October 9th, 2018. For 32 years, Linda Estes worked for the University of New Mexico Lobos, retiring in 2000 as the school's associate athletic director. During her time, Estes was responsible for ushering into the athletic department the gender equalizing requirements mandated by Title IX of the Education Amendments Act of 1972. Her work on this, however, extended well beyond New Mexico. As Estes tells me, Title IX and gender equality more broadly have never been on sure footing in college sports. And, sure enough, a recent UNM report revealed the school is failing miserably to adhere to the Title IX standards that Estes worked so hard for. UNM's quick fix solution has been to jettison several Olympic sports, and its justifications for doing so feel awfully familiar and tired to Estes, who worked as an indefatigable supporter of the so-called non-revenue program. Last April, Estes, who now lives in Hawaii, waded into the maiden debate over cutting Lobo's scheme, writing an op-ed in the Albuquerque Journal that argued the university should fire embattled athletic director Paul Krebs and repurpose his salary to spare the slopes. Well, Krebs is gone, but it appears so is scheme. In our ensuing conversation, Estes and I look back at her long career at UNM and what has happened in the 18 years since she retired. Among other things, Estes explains why she thinks the perpetual yearning for football greatness is the poison chalice of Lobo Athletics. She tells me a yet unreported story about a concerning encounter she had at UNM with infamous basketball coach Dave Bliss, and she explains why, after she left the university, she took all of her files and her notes. If, as they say, those who forget the past are doomed to repeat it, then there may be no better sage to consult at this very moment. And so, without further ado, I give you Linda Estes. All right, Linda Estes, welcome to the NM Fishbowl podcast. Thank you, Daniel. So I want to begin last summer when you were found in an Albuquerque Journal op-ed piece weighing in on, at that time, the debate over cutting skiing. Since that moment, there's been a number of other sports, including skiing, that have been uh, set for elimination at UNM. But you, uh, this was when just skiing was on the chopping block and you wrote into the Albuquerque Journal uh, a, a guest column that effectively proposed UNM getting rid of then-athletic director Paul Krebs and using some of the money, some of his salary money, to, uh, to then continue skiing. Can you kind of give me and, and the audience a little bit of a sense of what made you, having not been at UNM eight, for 18 years, weigh in in that way um, and on that subject? Um, a couple of things. First of all, it wasn't the summer. It was last April. And, and I believe April, early April, they announced they were going to 
drop the SKEEP program with just no, you know, as of July 1st with no warning, whatever, uh, which I felt was really a disservice to the skiers and the coaches. Um, I've been gone by that time almost 17 years, and that was the first time I had ever weighed in on anything that happened in the athletic department. Um, and um, I was annoyed by it, and I didn't think it was fair. Um, they were dropping the ski program. However, I uh, had an athletic director who exceeded his budget year after year to accrue a deficit. He made poor hiring decisions, which cost countless dollars for UNM, and there was just a result, lack of financial control. Instead of getting it um, under control, the answer was, let's drop skiing. And it wasn't an op-ed column. I just wrote that as a letter to the editor. I see. And so, so I'm obviously, any, any of our listeners or any of my followers would know, I'm, I've been nothing but a, a critic of Paul Krebs. I'm wondering, you, you obviously still know people who have worked at UNM or in the athletic department uh, in recent years. And, and I imagine you still know people uh, who, who are in the athletic department. Was this just a, your vantage of, from reading headlines, or did you also get some sense from what you heard from people who were in the department about Krebs? No, I, I uh, lived in Albuquerque for a long time, so I read the Albuquerque newspaper online. Uh, every day and what I got I yeah I do know a couple of people at, at the university still that I knew when I was there but um, and I've only I only met Krebs twice so that just went from what I knew I read in the newspaper about deficits and this and that but no I didn't uh, talk to anybody who worked for him for me, the through line that kind of defined Paul Krebs's tenure um, really comes back to what seemed to be motivating him as an athletic director at New Mexico. And my perspective based on some of the things you just mentioned was that he was being motivated by, by a desire to find a better job probably in the Big Ten where he had at one point worked, he is a graduate of Ohio State, he had worked in the Ohio State Athletic Department, and it was sort of well known that his dream job was back, um, at least in the Big Ten, if not back at Ohio State. And I could just see in a lot of his decisions, the incentives, or as I would describe them, the bad incentives of a athletic director coming to New Mexico, basically trying to boost his resume for a place like Ohio State. And so, it was the, the attempt to make a splashy football hire that was a little bit contrarian in the, in the hiring of Mike, uh, of, of Mike Loxley. It was the spending of money on capital projects that arguably weren't necessary um, or weren't particularly well thought, up, thought out um, because, again, that, that would pad his resume for somebody looking to then go on to uh, a, bigger, a bigger athletic department. And, and I think ultimately, you know, this is not an uncommon phenomenon in, in college athletics for places like New Mexico in that sort of mid-major realm where they become 
you know, they become the victims of carpetbaggers, more or less, who come in, make poor, especially financial decisions, you know, get out of town before the checks ultimately come due, and then someone else, their their successors, um, are or or ultimately the taxpayers or other people have to clean up the mess. And and what the only gratifying thing as it relates to Krebs was he wasn't able to beat out of town. I mean, though he, it, it appeared he tried to get other jobs, he couldn't. Um, and he ultimately, though he, he left with his, um, his uh, retirement compensation intact, um, he, he actually had to deal with this, deal with some of the consequences, um, although I would argue not nearly as much as he should. So that's my perspective. Do you have, based on your experience at UNM and maybe some of the predecessors in the at that job, I mean, for, again, looking from your vantage point, did you see some sort of, you know, uh, motivating factor for why Krebs did the things he did? Uh, I'm only speculating. Like I said, I wasn't there. But the way I looked at it from an outsider was, his claim to fame was that he had hired Urban Meyer at Bowling Green. And so I think everybody thought that was a great qualification for the job. I think he came in ill-prepared for the job here. I don't, or at New Mexico, I don't know if he was, if he was looking for another job, but uh, I think Rocky Long was a pretty good football coach. And I think he left because he just sensed a lack of support. And I think Krebs, and again, I'm only speculating. I know nothing. Uh, it's just how it looks to me. I think Krebs thought that he would make a name for himself by hiring a big-time football coach. And, of course, it blew up in his face. Yeah, well, and exactly. And that, I see the same thing. I mean, to make a name for himself didn't necessarily gel with what was the best decisions for the university's athletic department. And I, I assume Rocky rightly read the tea leaves that the new athletic director trying to sort of burnish his own reputation, the, one, of the, one of the best ways to do that at a place like New Mexico is to make a new football or men's basketball hire. Um, and Krebs... Yeah, I, I think that's, that's probably true. Um, what was the reaction you got to that op-ed or, or, you know, that was the last thing, like you said, that was the only time you've sort of publicly weighed in on UNM since you, uh, you retired in 2000. I'm curious if you got any interesting reaction after you wrote that, um, well, that letter to know, the editor. Um, George Brooks, Ski New Mexico, who had Ski New Mexico, worked for me for almost 30 years. So, there were a lot of people who supported the skiing program out there who were very supportive. Uh, I didn't personally get any negative reaction, but I'm sure there was some. Uh, at that point, I think Krebs was pretty unpopular anyway, so nobody was going to jump in to defend him. No, you're right, and, and he sort of has remained that way. So here we are, so as you, you, you were correct, that column uh, or that, that letter to the editor ran uh, last April. So here we are more than a year later, and not only is now skiing um, eliminated, or at least planned to be eliminated, but we also have men's soccer um, and diving 
um, and some of the track and field uh, uh, scholarships have also been done away with. And this has been the, the explanation for why UNM has made these cuts goes back to an issue that's near and dear uh, to your uh, work life at, at New Mexico, and that is Title IX. You know, UNM put out a report not too long ago saying that it had been effectively way out of compliance with the Title IX requirements, which basically, uh, to, to boil it down, and, and you can fill in where you think I'm, I'm just being too cursory over this, that, that, the, that the distribution of athletic slots at a university should be representative of the gender breakdown on the campus. And there's more women who attend UNM now, and yet there's many more men who are given opportunities to participate in athletics. And so UNM recognized this arguably quite a bit late. They hadn't done a Title IX study of this kind for almost a decade before. Um, and then their solution was that they needed to cut sports, sports that had a lot of scholarships. And they were also dealing with the fact that they had, as you pointed out, had been uh, in a, a state of financial deficit year in and year out for the last number of years. And so, you know, again, this was, you could kind of hear people muttering under their breath, though they didn't say this explicitly, you know, that damn Title IX, now we have to cut sports. Um, Give me, give me your sense uh, insofar as you've kind of kept, kept pace on things with the sports cuts and, and how this, it's not atypical that Title IX is, the, is, the, is what is blamed when a athletic department decides to, to eliminate sports. Um, I think it's really easy to blame the women. We see that in all, a lot of phases in society. Uh, I don't know the formula or what they look at, um, I think it's real easy to do that instead of saying mismanagement of the football or the athletic program, which went millions of dollars over its budget. Uh, it's much easier to say, oh, well, it's Title IX, we got to do this. So yeah, it seems the ones. I don't buy it. Right. I mean, the Go one ahead. certainty was that no one. <laughs> No one was going to give up their pay. No one who was making a lot of money in the athletic department was going to be sacrificing that in order for the department to spend less revenue and therefore bring down um, its deficit. So necessarily this falls on the athletes and necessarily it falls on the athletes of what's described as the Olympic sports. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, it seems just fundamentally unfair. Um, I had a guest on last podcast, which ran last week, um, who, who was an economist who studied a lot about college sports and their budgets, who also said it didn't make any financial sense that what the school was claiming to save um, was grossly overstated. Um, and that, again, the one program that you would argue would be the biggest drain financially on the athletic department, that being football, has had very little asked uh, of it in terms of austerity measures, whereas other sports are now being totally wiped out. And I think I, I, for reasons of their on-field performance, it was the men's soccer team, which has been ranked, you know, uh, highly ranked over the over recent years, um, that had sort of spawned a, uh, a community-wide community outrage. Um, and so now we don't know. I mean, now it's, it's quite possible that there's going to be pressure 
apply to have these sports reinstated or at least not eliminated come next school year. But um, I, the, the report says that UNM, as of last year, was favoring men disproportionately by 11.6%, and that in order to make up for this, they would have to reduce or 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 in reduce 145 men's scholarships or increase 145 women's scholarships and so obviously it wasn't the idea of adding more people was not was not considered and so they started they started slicing you effectively ushered in title nine at at unm I, i'd love for you especially given how this is creeping up as a uh, as an issue now if you can kind of tell us the history of introducing UNM, UNM uh, to the gender equality requirements of Title IX, I believe back in 1972. Well, first of all, I really don't know what they are. Um, I, don't, I don't know the formula and I have not read that report. Uh, I would be very surprised, let's just say that UNM was fully funding all of its sports and it didn't have a financial problem. I would be really surprised if there was a Title IX problem. And I'll give you, I'll give you another example. Uh, I think it can be more than slots. It's a Title IX problem. Uh, when I was there, they had a great weight room in the Todeen building. Uh, it was for all the athletes. At some point in time, they decided, well, we're only going to have that weight room for football. And it was a state-of-the-art weight room with everything in it. So they moved the women to a weight room, which they put on the tennis, stadium tennis court with a tent over it. I would definitely call that a Title IX violation. My reporting, I haven't written a story about this, but from what I've heard talking to people that this was a, this kind of emanated from what the current football coach Bob Davey demanded he did not want other I don't think it was specifically women but he didn't want other sports to use the football facility because he thought that sort of diminished it reputationally in the eyes of of football players that UNM could boast of having an, a football exclusive weight facility even though the football team largely leaves it unoccupied. I mean, the players are there only for a That's small right. part of the That's day. Right. I don't know where it came from. I just knew that it happened, and I was shocked that uh, they would do something like that, that Krebs would go along with something like that. But I, w I, would, uh, I would definitely see that. You know, we're talking about violating Title IX. I would see that as a violation. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I looked through the report. I don't remember, I could be wrong, I don't remember seeing that come up as part of the compliance standards that it um, identified. But, yeah, in the spirit of what, the, of what well, that the law is. the report was written by their consultant, wasn't it? I mean, it, it's born on their stationery, and I believe it was signed by their athletic director. It, I, I, w I would not be surprised if it was. Oh, okay. I, 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 it might have been, they might have hired an outside consultant. I don't no, I don't remember that. They off did the hire an outside consultant. I think that's right. I think that's right. So I'm assuming that this was all done for them. And obviously, this is their own way of of evaluating themselves, and they're going to do this in the way that suits what they ultimately want the ends to be. 
Um, it always helps to have a consultant to hide behind. Yes, yes. I'm, we're noticing that in, in, in college athletics, I think, in general in recent years, where everything is being farmed out to what has become like a cottage industry of, of pliable um, consultants, to, whether it's sexual assault investigations or uh, things like this Title IX report or any number of things. Yes, it's, no, the, the onus is clearly being shifted on some sort of outside authority. So I would presume, as you're suggesting, that they don't have to uh, take full accountability for, for the results. Did, um, so let's, but I do want to go back. Let's, let's talk about the history. And in some ways, let's just begin at, the, at your start at UNM. Um, and, and if you can kind of tie in where Title IX comes in. When, when did you start at the university? I started at UNM in 1969 as an instructor in the PE department. And uh, after I was there about a year, they gave, gave me the title of director, I think, of women's extra uh, mural sports, which was play days. I don't know if you know anything about the history, but they had very little for women at that time. Yeah, no, give me, if you could fill in the picture, I, uh, that would be interesting to me. Uh, you d in the, initially, you didn't have regular schedules. You'd have what they'd call a sports day, and you'd get a bunch of people on a bus, say, drive to Tempe, Arizona, and you'd have the volleyball team and maybe the swimming team, uh, some other team, a bunch of teams, tennis maybe, and they'd do things all day or for a couple of days and you'd come home. But you didn't have like a conference schedule, which developed later. And so what was your, when, when you were appointed to this position? When I started, it was just starting to develop a conference and things like that. So I was still in the PE department. And so uh, health, physical education and recreation, they called it, yeah. And so, so that, that 1969 you start, 1972 is when the uh, Education Amendments Act, which includes Pat, then- Patsy Mink, yes, Title IX. Right, right. Um, and so the, the act says, you know, it, the, the, the key part of the act says, no person in the United States shall on the basis of sex be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. So, this, this is a federal act. What is the story in New Mexico? Well, uh, let me tell you just a little story about Title IX, which may be of interest to you. Patsy Mink was new from Hawaii, and uh, I got to meet with her after I retired and came over here. And she, she was, had, and uh, she was the, uh, she was the she lawyer. Was the, she, along with a representative, I believe, Edith Green, and I forget which state you were, but they were the two people behind Title IX. Well, Patsy had been a great student at high school. She lived on Maui. She wanted to go to college and become a doctor. And uh, so she went to, I believe it was a university on the mainland. I'm not sure which one, maybe I don't know. I don't really. It could have been Nebraska, someplace like that. And she did very well in school. And 
then she applied to all these medical schools because she wanted to be a doctor. And every single one of them wrote back to her and said, we're not taking any men this year into our medical schools. So instead, she went to the University of Chicago, I believe, and became a lawyer, came back to Hawaii, got in politics. So when she went back to, she was elected to Congress, the thing that was most important to her was equality for women. And she was interested in educational institutions. She was interested in getting women into law school, medical school. She wasn't even thinking about athletics. And that was just sort of a side product of what she was initially trying to do. And what, so obviously you're, you, you are, your connections to her were in Hawaii. I just met her once and talked with her. I didn't have a, a connection with her, but you know, I knew a lot about Title IX. And I was very naive. Title IX passed. And I thought, God, our problems are over. That's the law. They'll have to do it. Well, it's like the 55-mile-an-hour speed limit. It means nothing unless it's enforced. And uh, getting it enforced was an uphill battle. Uh, When the men realized that uh, Title IX was going to apply to athletics, they went crazy all over the country, tried to get an amendment through Congress exempting athletics. In New Mexico, I think you, you're uh, familiar with this and, and can kind of tell the story here interestingly. Um, there was a case filed by Nancy Lopez. Right, Nancy Lopez. The golfer, and this was when she was in high school and wanted to play golf because she was so damn good on the Goddard Boys golf team, um, and I guess was mm-hmm. prevented from that and then filed suit. What was the outcome of that? Okay. Uh, Nancy wanted to play, and they wanted her to play. And the New Mexico Activities Association said, no way, no girl can be on a boys' team. Nancy's parents, to their credit, came to the uh, ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union, New Mexico Civil Liberties Union. Uh, At that time, I believe I was on the board. I was on the board at one time. I can't remember if it was then, but I think it was. And uh, ACLU took the suit, and they assigned a lawyer by the name of Roberta Ramo. And I don't know if that name means anything to you. Yes, the the, the Ramos are, are, <laughs> are well known. But, but remind the audience about who Roberta was. Well, uh, she was an attorney in Albuquerque but she later became the first woman president of the American Bar Association. Anyway, she is brilliant and takes this case, but they can't get any women to testify on behalf of Nancy, anybody who's involved in athletics, because these women were saying, well, if girls play on boys' teams, then boys will play on girls' teams. Well, there were practically no girls' teams in the state, so... Uh, I went and testified before the Activities Association on behalf of Nancy and that she should have a right to play. Uh, But Roberta was the one that was brilliant. She was just, she got up and said, when you discriminate 
against girls, you are discriminating against tax-paying parents who happen to have daughters instead of sons. And, you know, some of the people got up and just made these stupid arguments at the uh, Activities Association. One guy got up and said, well, I'd hurt boys' egos if a girl played. And another guy got up and said, well, if she played, there isn't a boy in the state that can't beat her. Well, the first, we won, obviously, in the first year, uh, her team won the state championship, and she came in second. So it, it was a big, big deal that this happened, and then uh, that sort of instigated more teams uh, for girls. Did this have developed. any? Did this have any impact on the way? Did did this, uh, though it was in high school? Did this have any impact on UNM and how UNM received uh, the 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 mandate to to open up opportunities for female athletes? Well, I think I think yes. I think uh, we had a good president then at the time. His name was Farrell Eddy, and. Uh, he was quoted as saying they were going to put a priority on uh, developing women's athletics. At that time, for my program, I think I had a budget of $4,300. And <laughs> so they announced they were <laughs> putting a priority on women's athletics, and that the next year it would be $35,000. And I thought, wow, they're giving me the world. And who was the athletic director at the time? Let's see, the athletic director uh, might have been Pete McDavid. When does when does uh, John um, Bridgers become the AD? Oh God! <laughs> um, your 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 dear friend John Bridgers. <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to think. There was Pete McDavid was the athletic director, then. Uh, LaVon McDonald was the athletic director. I'm just trying to think of... I think, I, I, if I'm if my notes are right, I have Bridgers coming to UNM in, in 1979 after... Okay, after being that, at, that would well, seem about right. So by John this... Bridgers... So let's... So, so take us up to this point. So the, 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 the uh, Title IX is, is uh, signed into law by Richard Nixon. Does UNM... I mean, is it... That immediate, that next year, 1973, that UNM begins to open up these opportunities. I believe that was when Farrell Hetty said, uh, he said in '73 we're going to put a priority on women's athletics. That's when they gave me the $35,000 budget, and it went up from there. You know, not it, it was, it wasn't like, you know, I would say in Title IX every time I turned around it's discrimination. I'm giving speeches, but. Um, it wasn't like all of a sudden there, I thought $35,000 was a big windfall, but when you had to do all these things, it really wasn't. But they increased it every year. Of course, not as much as I wanted. Was there anything, talking to your compatriots at other schools who were trying to implement um, Title IX reforms there, did you gather a sense of how UNM was doing in comparison? I think we were pretty much a leader. Uh, you've got to remember also, and I don't know if you know this, there was an organization called the 
Association for Intercollegiate Athletics for Women. Now, that was supposed to be the women's equivalent to the NCAA. But AIAW prohibited athletic scholarships for women. Under what rationale? Oh, well, if we give scholarships, women's athletics will be corrupt like the men. <laughs> okay. Interesting. That's true. Yeah, well, <laughs> that... that that may well be. That may well be. And you were you were on that. You were a board member on that organization, right? Well, until I got thrown off. And but uh, I was. I never agreed with that. I was just. I always was against it. I. I just. Uh, there was no way that could be legal, and that whole protective thing. Um, so. Let's see. So I'm. I'm I didn't get. I didn't get thrown off of the AIAW board until I was put on the NCAA executive committee. That's what led to that. Because they didn't want you to have both dual, dual positions on these two different organizations. Oh, they were hysterical that I was on the uh, NCAA executive committee. What did they think was going to be the outcome of you having feet in both, in both places? I, I don't know what they... Uh, I was winning every time we challenged anything, you know, the scholarship issue. I didn't, I'm not the person who filed the suit. Some people filed in uh, uh, Florida, I forget, Kelmeyer, I believe was the name of the case. And a, a woman tennis player had filed against the AIW. Well, they saw the handwriting on the wall. And I think the first thing they said is, okay, women can get scholarships but we're only going to let them have tuition. So it's just, it, I used to call it the Association for Interfering with Athletics for Women. And um, I was trying <laughs> to change it from, yeah. from the inside. So, um, all right, let's, so let's get to, uh, to John Bridgers, who I know you've uh, sort, of, sort of famously um, locked horns with <laughs> on, on issues probably beyond this. Um, so he comes in 1979, for those who don't remember or weren't around at that time. So Bridgers oversaw UNM during the whole Norm Ellenberger, Gary Colson era. Um, no, no, no. no. Oh, sure. he, he was there because the Ellenberger thing happened with LeVon McDonald. I'm, I'm, you're right. You're right. I'm mistaken. McDonald lost its job, and they brought in John Bridgers. Right. John Bridgers had been fired as the football coach at Baylor, and then he went to uh, Florida State as the athletic director. And his claim to fame was uh, he hired Bobby Bowden, the football coach at Florida State. And then he and Bobby Bowden kind of crossed swords. And Bridgers was looking to get out of Florida State. And his brother, Frank Bridgers, was, the, um, was a businessman in Albuquerque. And he put on a press to get John hired as athletic director. And uh, that's how he got to UNM. So he inherits the Ellenberger scandal, but then he is responsible for then hiring Gary Colson. 
he hired Gary Colton, so what, correct. So, so what but was, that time, Ellenberger was gone, I think. Yeah, that's I'm right. Sure, oh, yeah, he was gone. That's right. And, so, and Charlie, uh, I think Charlie Harrison, who had been the assistant coach, ran the basketball program that year. Bridgers hired Colson, but he didn't take over until the season was over. So what did you, yeah, tell me what your uh, impressions of Bridgers were and maybe what you think his impressions of you were. Well, when you get a new boss, you want to get along with him, and you're hopeful. But John Bridgers had, he could, women's athletics was a pain in the ass. The only thing he cared about was football. And he was going to make it a great football program. And uh, he was, I, you know, I put on my boxing gloves every day I went to work. The first, the first of, yeah, I mean, there's, there's obviously then a theme, maybe not people as uh, demonstrative about it as John Bridgers, but there's been this theme now of, of Lobo football being this, having the potential to be this national power. Um, and I think that's motivated a lot of, of, well, we can say men who've held that job uh, from, from Bridgers on. Um, so... In what so he he was particularly he was particularly resistant to the idea that women's you know greater greater um, numbers of women participating and therefore greater resources spent by the university on female athletes was going to somehow eat away at his football That's budget. That's what they always said. Of course, if we do that, it'll take away from the football program. Um. What, what, but the, uh, just just one thing, they have always tried to sell football as a revenue producer. Yes. That's what he always called. It is not. There, I don't believe there's been a single year in history where football brought in more money than it spent. So that whole thing about what's well, a revenue producer is a farce. And it continues to be that the current athletic director, Eddie Nunez, has been make, making the same sorts of noises that everyone since the dawn of of lobo time has been making on that front saying you know it, it's the fim, it's a familiar cliche so we have to you know you can't you can't be great by cutting uh you have to be competitive everybody points to the few universities that seem similar to unm namely boise state that have somehow kind of out kicked their coverage on their football programs and and you know implied that this is within UNM's grasp as well, and this could really be a boon for for the university and for the athletics department. And, and my response to them is at what point, how far back or how far forward do we have to roll the historical tape before somebody can say, you know what, this is just not what it is at New Mexico. That's right. And, you know, there are the five big conferences. We can't compete with them. You know, Texas puts $2 million into their locker rooms for football. They have the money. We, we don't do that. I mean, this whole thing, well, if we just get an indoor practice facility, if we just have our own weight room, uh, I'm not saying we should drop football. I think it should be made to come in within its budget, and I don't think it should be given a blank check. I totally agree. I mean, that that's that would be, and and financially, it's the same. It's it would be a beneficial financial scenario if they went the other way. If they thought, you know, maybe not cutting it right to the bone, but if they thought to themselves, what's the least we could spend 
and, and effectively maintain what we have where we're not depriving athletes, but where we're not also right. just throwing money down the drain because I, I've, I've said this so much I'm, I'm blue in the face from saying it. There's not, there's not a huge amount of money that's ever going to come that's going to significantly change the fortunes of Lobo football. That's just not happening. That's exactly. So, and that's the money, exactly. and the money that could, the additional money that could be spent, is effectively just going to go to either the benefit of the coaching staff or the contractors who get to do the renovation projects or the expansion projects to the football facilities. That's it. It's not going to make them a more winning program. It's not going to, it's not going to reduce the deficit of that program specifically. It's just going to go to this kind of plutocracy of, of individuals, namely the head football coach. Um, and, and, and that's it. I mean, it, it's to his, it's to his benefit and, and in many ways only to his benefit. But, you know, football is kind of like a religion if you, a cult. And, um, it's like you're, if you even suggest a cut, people get hysterical. Oh, I, I, I think that's a, an, an absolutely apt analogy. It's if you don't believe in football, you don't believe in Jesus. And uh, that's that's exactly right. And and that's where the conversation ends. And that's why the and God and country. Right, that's right. That's right. And and that's why the people who defend the continued or increasing spending of money on football don't have particularly good arguments because it's it's a faith. It's, a, it's an article of faith to want to have football. I mean, I went to the University of Wisconsin. I know what a robust, competitive, nationally relevant college football program looks like and feels like. And I, I wouldn't advocate cutting football for you and I either. Um, but it's not it, it. There's a there's a Grand Canyon size of a chasm between UNM and and and, a, and programs on that part. And that's gaps never going to be is never going to be shortened it's it's only going the yeah, other way I, I i think it's important to the community i mean you know many high schools in the state play football but if you look at how many youth play soccer today as opposed to pop warner i think you would be shocked i totally agree i totally agree it's a it's a segue for a, something we'll, we'll we'll revisit at the end of our discussion so so John Bridgers ultimately departs UNM and is replaced by someone who I think probably when he came in, you might have been concerned, you might have had similar concerns that he was, you know, John Bridgers' redux, and that was Rudy Davalos. Um, and I, I, no, I, no, 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 no. John, John Bridgers wasn't replaced by Oh, I'm Rudy sorry. Davalos. Right, right. You're, you're correct. But I, I'm... I'm, I'm I, <laughs> I'm skipping. I'm skipping at least a couple of athletic directors to get to Rudy Davalos. But, but yes, I because I, I, you you've spoken warmly about Rudy Davalos, and I think I've read also where you have talked about your concerns about him coming in that were, uh, you know, that he was going to maybe be another steamrolling presence like John Bridgers, um, but that you you found it to be uh, quite a bit different in dealing with Rudy. I loved Rudy. Um, what you saw was what you got. And Rudy liked strong women. Um, 
I could say I could say anything to him. He he might not agree with me, and he certainly didn't give me everything I thought we should have. But uh, he was honest. Um, I really yeah. It was that was the. I'll, I'll tell you I'll tell you a little story. I saved every piece of paper in my career because I thought I would eventually end up suing the university for sex discrimination. And if it hadn't been for Rudy Davalos, I probably would have. When did, when, what was, was that all beginning with when did you start thinking that? I started thinking about it probably in the 70s. Do you still, do you still have your, uh, your boxes of papers? Uh, I've thrown a lot of them away, but I kept some of them, yeah. So, okay, very interesting. Um, and so what What about Rudy um, changed your mind, and how early on, when, once he was hired, did you? We, we hit it off right away. We were very compatible. He was very frank. I was very frank. I could always feel uh, that I could say anything to him. People used to say that I was the only person that could do that because Rudy could get emotional and he could get, he was quick on the draw, but uh, I loved him. You, so you continued to rise up the ranks in the athletic department, but it was until I think the, towards the very end of your time at UNM, you were still, it was still sort of bifurcated where you were in charge of women's sports. Am I correct in that? When Gary Ness was athletic director, he decided uh, to let me have the rest of the men's sports except for football and men's basketball. And uh, was this men, something? Was this something that you had been pushing for? No, I was shocked when uh, he said he wanted to do it. But I thought, you know, why not? I wasn't. I wasn't particularly against it. Scared those men in those sports to death uh, because I'd been such an advocate for the women. But all that did was it was a pretty smart move because then it made me an advocate for those sports. Hmm. And one of the one of the greatest compliments I ever got was I read it later on. I think it was after I retired and they had interviewed Bill Dodson, who used to coach wrestling, and he said that I did more for the wrestling team than any athletic director ever did and i took that as a great compliment so these are the sports that are described as the minor sports then or the olympic sports did you right did you at that time did you want to have a hand or what would have been the difference if you had had some sort of overseeing role on the in the in the major sports the football and the men's basketball let's say i don't know i didn't even think about that nobody would have ever turned that over to me you would have dropped it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I would have made them come in within their budget. Well, that that would be uh, to some that's that's the that's the same kind of uh, the same kind of thing. Women's basketball was eliminated. It was it was begun in 1974, and then was eliminated right. in 1987. What was the reasons? Right. What was the reasons? Then obviously it was reinstated about four years later. Why was it eliminated? Okay. We had a president that really didn't know much about Title IX, and he was into this stuff about, oh, we don't have enough money. So they eliminated, I believe, men's baseball and one other sport. And 
at that time, it was either I made the choice to eliminate the. I mean, they pretty much said you can do whatever you want or eliminate, and I would have had to go eliminate another sport if it wasn't basketball. It would have been two other sports. So I eliminated women's basketball because I knew that they would have to bring it back because of Title IX, that we were within, uh, you know, we were in a conference, and there would be pressure to bring it back, and it was brought back. So it was a strategic elimination under the assumption that it wouldn't be permanent. Oh, yeah, I knew that it wouldn't be permanent. Whereas if uh, I'd eliminated, say, skiing, that would have been, that never would have come back. Tell me um, what, so though he wasn't in, under your um, o under over your overseeing, he was you were you were there at in the athletic department the entire time of, of Dave Bliss's career. Um, Correct. So I find the Bliss history interesting in that, the, you know, he le he scandalized before he comes to UNM. He's really scandalized after he leaves UNM. And I'm wondering, those who knew him at UNM, what they make of this, this interregnum at New Mexico where at least he's not caught for anything that, that, uh, that further, uh, you know, mars his, uh, his reputation. But as, especially in the wake of the Baylor um, fiasco and everything that's kind of happened since this recent uh, documentary and his various failed efforts to land at high schools and and smaller colleges and different roles um tell me what you make of dave bliss and and has it changed your i don't know what your perspective of was of him when he was at unm but has it changed um a couple of things dave was for dave um secondly i've heard since that uh you know they were paying players at unm and stuff like that but i I never heard that when I was there, when he was there. I, you know, there were always rumors, stuff like that. But I, I didn't hear any of that, that he was cheating. And I don't know to, the, to this day that, that he was, although those are stories I've heard. Um, I, this is a hard story to tell, okay? One of his basketball players raped a woman on the ski team. Now, when I heard about that, the woman was totally traumatized. She came to me, they made her come and see me. And she just didn't want to do anything. She, uh, and that's when I learned about rape victims is basically all you're doing is you're asking to hold their coat and they have to go through the whole thing over in terms that they're going to press charges, they're going to make it public, etc. cetera. Uh, it was heartbreaking. I had to hold off the ski team because they were going to go out and break this guy's knees. Um, eventually I tried to talk to Dave about it and he was totally nonplussed. 
it wasn't a concern. And of course, there was nobody to file a complaint, nobody to charge the guy. So uh, that was my relation with Dave Bliss. Was my, this, uh, I'm obviously sensitive to protecting uh, um, accusers' names, but was this, uh, what part of Dave Bliss's career at UNM was this, at the beginning or the end, or the middle? You know, I, re I really, I honestly, God, do not remember that. And, and is it your recollection that this never got out into the media or public? It never, um, never. But you had, yeah, I mean, this is, so I've written, you know, fairly extensively. I feel like everyone who's covering college athletics is writing or probably should be writing a story because they're so replete about incidences of coaches in the major sports, particularly football, men's basketball, and they're either they're they're undue influence in or their uncooperation in um, investigations dealing with sexual assault uh, allegations well, made against I, their players. I can't, you know, I thought his attitude was callous, but but I have I have to say this: if you've got a person who won't file a complaint, who won't say anything. I, I don't know what a coach can do. Was the... I felt he was unsympathetic, but without somebody stepping forward, I'm not sure he could have done anything. I mean, Dave Bliss's reputation now, I think, and it will be on his gravestone, is, is as you know co one of college basketball's worst monsters. And in some ways, I feel like that's unfair... Not necessarily to him, but to the truth of what goes on. I, I my perception of him is he was kind of like your garden variety, self-serving, um, you know, college basketball coach, and it just the way you know, self-serving, hypocritical, grandstanding, like that's hard to find in the biz, and you know, it, by by the dint of the circumstances, and perhaps maybe he had a unusual amount of desperation. Um, you know, he, he, he became the, at the center of this insane, uh, situation involving the death of, of Patrick Dennehy at Baylor. Um, but I don't know, did, was he a monster? Is he an outlier or is, does, does his whole saga speak to some larger truth about the pressures and the incentives that are on college basketball players in the modern era or college basketball coaches in the modern era? And I don't know that answer to to that. And I, you know, since I wasn't, I didn't have that much dealings with Bliss or any of the other men's basketball coaches. Uh, and I just, I don't know the answer. When, um, tell me about uh, who else in the department that you sort of groomed or, or tutored uh, in terms of women because I'm interested, I mean, you obviously were, were a trailblazer in every sense of the word, um, and you really forced opportunities for yourself that probably weren't going to be coming any decade soon. Um, so you, we, we've talked about sort of your efforts as it related to athletes, but how about your efforts as it related to other female employees of the, of the uh, department? I don't know. 
I, I don't know if I was as good at that at being a mentor. You mean as I should have been? I know that uh, there was a woman in uh, the Lowbro Club who uh, the male athletic director had been put on the UNM retirement system, but she who is the maybe. I don't, she was more than a secretary, but she wasn't, and I heard about that, and actually Rudy Davalos, too, and we did some things about it, so that was one place being an advocate for a woman, but he was also, um, I, I, I'm having a hard time with that one. I'm, I'm thinking specifically, I'm yeah, I'm thinking specifically about uh, Janice Ruggiero. I, I, my understanding was that she, she, you sort of were, were a mentor to her. She kind of came up behind you in, in, the, uh, in the ascension of the department. Oh, yeah. Janice, uh, I think the first time uh, she was hired, her first job there, I'm not, well, I'm tr I'm t okay, I'm trying to remember. I think she was an assistant basketball coach. And then I think she was in academic advisement. She was in finance. Uh, the financial part, uh, she had a degree in business. She was wonderful. Uh, yeah, and I can't say enough good things about her. And she took my place. And I think she's probably, I told her she would have an easier time than I did. She was sort of pegged. I mean, she was the interim athletic director after after Krebs's resignation, and she had, I think, before that period, was thought by at least some people that she was maybe an athletic director type in waiting that didn't come to pass. I don't know if you have a perspective on on what that means. I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't think Janice wanted that. Um, she has, uh, her family is there in New Mexico, her father and her mother. She comes from a long time family, big family, prominent in New Mexico, and I don't really think she wanted to leave. So uh, I've gotten on her a couple of times, said, you know, look at these women that are all over the country. Women are being hired. You could probably have your pickup job with your, your experience She's been in every aspect of the athletic department. Um, she's very smart. She's a Hispanic woman. She's a gym. So I think she could go anytime she wanted to. When you left in 2000, what was your title at that point? I was associate director for maybe Olympic sports and university relations. I think that was it. And so you, as you had been previously, your portfolio was pretty much the same. It was, was, uh, it was the sports other than football and men's basketball? Everything except football and men's basketball also had academic advisement under me. Um, Did you? I think that happened because there were some problems and they just gave it to me <laughs> seem seems like a wise thing to do in some in some respects um some the, people might say that others not 
did you aspire to a higher an even higher position at UNM or elsewhere no I don't the people that hung around the athletic department uh, the football program things like that the boosters the good old boys a great deal of your job of athletic of athletic director is to hang out with these guys and cultivate them I knew that I would never want to do that and that's a big part of the job did you ever think Just about Paul Krabs, he went to Scotland with them <laughs> yes yes he did I, I've been told I've heard <laughs> about that trip the um, did you ever look to leave New Mexico and take another job another school no I love New Mexico uh, I, I loved my job particularly the time I was working for Rudy I I didn't I didn't think about it one of the things though that men's basketball wasn't uh, again under your stead per se um, but that's have has always kind of been the I mean if, if I don't know if this bears out financially but the cash cow the major program in New Mexico the defining program nationally for New Mexico when you leave in 2000 it seems like it's the end of an era, at least in terms of the fan base. Um, and I, I, I guess 2000, so Fran Fraschilla would have probably have been the coach for a year or two by then. Bliss had already left. And, uh, and you know, there was no. some – am I, am I getting those dates wrong? Yeah. You, when I left in 2000, Fran Fraschilla had long gone. Rocky Long was the football coach. Oh, and McKay, uh, and McKay was the uh, – no, uh, Bliss was still there. I think. Oh, still okay. Okay, no. that's right. So no, no, Bliss. Yeah, when did Bliss leave? I just remember Frischilla being there during September 11th because I remember a specifically infamous moment that happened after that, and I. So he might. Oh, Frischilla. Yeah, you're right. Right. You're absolutely right. I was thinking of Franchoni. Right. No. 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 Right. Right. No. Men's yeah. basketball with Frischilla. Right, and so he was. He was there when I left. Right, and so he kind of stumbled a little bit, and the pro, the men's basketball program has has certainly had ups and downs since then. I would say the up being with Steve Alford, but it's never been the same thing. I mean, it, you know, it, it's certainly not what it was in the '70s, and or the '80s, and it's and you know, I I grew up in Albuquerque. I'm I'm 35 now, so sort of my perspective was in the '90s during the Bliss era where you could go to the pit and lose your hearing. And I feel like, yes, there's been a stadium renovation and there's been some changes to the building, but it also feels like whether it's demographic changes or phenomenon that go beyond UNM, that this moment in time for men's basketball where the pit was just this force um, that sort of didn't make a lot of sense given the population in Albuquerque and the relative success of men's basketball in the 80s and 90s, um, and that, that, that ceased in, in some ways. And so even though the Lobos have been good and the, and the fans have come and come back in those moments when they've performed well, it's just not the same. I, I wonder if you have a perspective because this, to me, you know, the, the, this moment insofar as, as it was this era kind of, Kind of ended upon you know when you, when you were also heading out though I'm not I'm not giving you credit for that. No, I, 
I don't. I don't really know. I can't answer that. I don't. I don't know. I wasn't there when Alfred was there, and uh, evidently it was people were just going for it. But I. I just can't answer that. I don't know if remodeling the pit was a mistake. Uh, certainly, I know they lost seats, but I. I just. I don't know. So right now, there's, you know, amidst this discussion about cutting sports, there's a, this renewed effort, and you're, one's hearing this coming from both directions, to get the state, the state legislature, to give more money to the athletic department um, as a way of sort of effectively bailing, bailing out these sports. How does that hit you? I mean, that, that general argument about you know, w w at what point is is it improper for even a person who's pro college athletics to say that taxpayers should continue to bail out an athletics department that hasn't necessarily handled its money that's been given to it uh, in the most responsible way? You know, I don't know the answer to that question. I think it would be. Uh, appropriate not to have uh, either regents, uh, governors, or legislators meddling in the athletic department. Which has been... In, when it, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, but when it's been so badly run and things have been allowed to happen, uh, sometimes uh, they fill a vacuum. Yeah, I've, I've been very interested in the dynamic you describe about the meddling because there's a great history of that, probably not just at UNM, but certainly at UNM. Um, I've been sort of shocked at the, at the micro details that people like, let's say, governors uh, including the recent governor, Susana Martinez, have this, have sort of taken up as it relates to the athletic department when on one hand, you know, this is more of a political commentary, you would think that they would have bigger fish to fry, including bigger fish to fry at the state's public universities uh, in general. Um, so, but yes, I could also see how at a certain point you take what you can get and if that comes with some uh, corollary uh, meddling, you know, you, you, lived, you lived to deal with that another day. Yeah. Well, Susanna uh, Martinez uh, in 2017 saved the skiing program. Yes. I, I, my understanding is at the behest of somebody you would know, uh, Jamie Cook, former uh, UNM regent Jamie Cook. No. Who's, what's, the, what's the story as far as you understand it? Well, uh, George Brooks of Ski, New Mexico, met with uh, Susanna Martinez on one day. I mean, I, I'd been in contact with George on a lot of things because I was doing everything I could from my end, too. But he met with the governor on one day, and she called him that night on his cell phone and told him that, skiing program was being reinstated. 
So it was your understanding that he he was the one who prevailed upon her? Well, no, I, I don't think it was just George. I think it was the, the people in the ski industry, everybody. I don't, I don't, but I, I think he really made the case. I've been interested because of how the current soccer coach, Jeremy Fishbein, has made the case as well for the saving of his sport um, and how political this has gotten. I mean, this is now a conversation piece in the gubernatorial election where both, you know, Democrat and, and Republican candidates, Steve Pierce and Michelle Lujan Grisham, have now both come out publicly in a forum, no, none, no less, to say that if, you know, they would, they would want ski, uh, men's soccer in these sports to be reinstated. And Fishbein has really made a kind of um, emotional, political, uh, this is kind of a, a culture of New Mexico identity argument um, that feels almost like he's running for office when what he's doing is, is trying to save his sport. Um, so I've just, I've kind of been intrigued by the whole dynamic and how this, first of all, how he's trying to make his case. Um, and then also how, how uh, resonant this has become in political races in New Mexico. Well, you don't often see that in political race. All I can say for Jeremy, it's more power to him. I mean, uh, not to lay down. He's built a great program. There's wonderful support for soccer in New Mexico. And the fact that he's just not turning over and playing dead, I, I admire him greatly for it. The other thing is, I think the university, when this whole thing came about, and I think political figures were saying, wait, you know, there's going to be more money at, in New Mexico. Don't drop wait until we can address it and i think the university would have been wise to to wait but they did not yeah clearly they felt the pro they whoever they are which i would assume would be the uh the the lion's share of the board of regents with some combination of the university president and the athletic director felt that it would it behooved them to uh to make some sort of move even if it was just a largely symbolic move in terms of the actual deficit sooner than later i understand the pressures they felt but clearly this is no one no one can argue that this decision has turned out well insofar as it seems like it's it's destined to be reversed in some capacity and so you're going to have I, alienated I think, that, I think that's true and i think it will be i think it's unfortunate that a new athletic director got dropped into the middle of this i i feel for nunez yeah, and I, 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 I don't know that I would say I feel for him per se, but I, I, he certainly, you know, he is. This is a mess he's having to clean up, um, a mess that's not of his doing, and it is not an easy thing to begin one's job with. Um, I, I, I can only imagine. I mean, I've, I've, I've invited him onto this podcast. Um, one of the questions I would certainly be keen to ask him is, what exactly was your understanding of the situation at New Mexico prior to you being hired? because I can't truly imagine that he had as clear-eyed a view of what was going on as perhaps he uh, wish, he, wish he had. But, I, I, that I don't know. I've never talked to the guy. I don't know him. What is, what's, so tell me, in the, in the 17, 18 years since leaving, leaving New Mexico um, and, and in, in, uh, professionally, what has been your 
connections? Do you ever come back into town to watch sports? Oh, sure. I have a sister and, uh, who lives in Santa Fe. She and her husband live there. I have uh, a niece and a nephew and a, uh, who live in Albuquerque. And, uh, or a niece who lives in Santa Fe, a nephew lives in Albuquerque. So, yeah, I come back two or three times a year. There's also, uh, I used to come back more often for the Giraffe Award. What is the Giraffe Award? Well, when I left New Mexico, some friends of mine, uh, when I was getting ready to leave, collected money and made an endowment. And basically it was... Uh, anything I wanted to do with it and uh, so we set up this giraffe award for people who stick their necks out and uh, it's give it usually we once a year with a, a you know about a thousand dollars it's the uh, cash award um, let's see we, we've given it to um, if there's anybody you might recognize, Valerie Plame. Sure. Do you remember that? The C, the former okay, CIA agent, right, right. Right, right. She lives in Santa Fe. Uh, Mikey Weinstein. Mm. Uh, he's the one that uh, I forget his organization, uh, which takes on uh, religious stuff at at the. Air Force Academy and other places. You probably read about that. Indeed, indeed, yes. And I'll direct the, our okay, listeners yeah. to a link to, to, to familiarize themselves if they're not already. Yeah, I forget the name. I've forgotten the name of his organization. Uh, we gave it to uh, the two women who filed the suit for gay marriage. Uh, th those are just three. We gave it to a woman in the police department who called them out for things that were happening. So we've given it to a lot of people. And I used to go back for that, but uh, we didn't give it last year, and we may not give it this year. I just haven't been on top of it. Would you at least consider ironically giving it to Paul Krebs for this year? <laughs> it's, for, it's, it's the Giraffe Award, not the Ostrich Award. <laughs> touche, touche. Well, Linda, look, I, I appreciate... I'll tell you one thing about Krebs, though. Sure. I don't think he's a crook. I think he was not a good administrator. I think he was not transparent. But I think they ought to just let him go on its way. Well, it, yeah, the, 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 the phenomenon that he's dealing with right now, the investigation by the Attorney General, seems to be the ultimate kind of Nixonian cover-up is worse than the crime kind of thing. But the, the lengths that he appeared to have gone based on what's dribbled out um, from that investigation uh, is just bizarre given what the Scotland trip ultimately was, which was just a stupid decision on a booster trip that was probably a waste of $40,000 or thereabouts. And but who do you think talked him into that? I don't know. I, I just thought, I don't even think, even if you're athletic department is in the not in the hole but that would have been a smart idea yeah it was a dumb idea and rather than i mean i think there's he, there's a relationship that unm has with its travel company anthony travel this was a package put together by them and i think 
my understanding is that Krebs thought that this was going to be a home run, that one, he thought Brian Urlacher was going to go and Steve Alford was supposed to still be the coach and that would draw, you know, Alford acolytes along. And, you know, for one reason or another, people started dropping out and, you know, and he went into this this really extreme kind of face saving mode that led to this again i mean it it's the cover-up that you would do if you had committed a crime i mean it just the the energy expended yeah. in in deceiving people on just as opposed to just saying i screwed up this was this was an unwise decision um you know mea culpa but uh but yeah i mean but he, he would not be the only person in history who ultimately got himself in trouble for what happened retroactively and not necessarily for for the original the original wrong um but I'll, t- I'll tell you one more story and it's because you're so involved in the foundation i'll tell you how the athletic department started putting funds in the foundation are you aware of that i have an idea but i i this is this is a i could talk about this uh for another hour and 15 minutes <laughs> no <laughs> When John Bridgers was the athletic director, our teams went out and they ra- they had to raise money. You know, they had different projects and they raised money. And then when at the end of the year, when his football program was in the hole, he would take away this money that, that these teams had sitting there. And I was looking for a way to protect it. And I found out if we put the money that we raised into the UNM Foundation, instead of into the athletic department, then he couldn't touch it. Very interesting. And that's how, that's how athletic, I, I don't know how the men started. I mean, uh, how the rest of the athletic department, but that's, so our teams, when they, you know, they would do different things. They had a Christmas tree sale one year. They had other things and they'd put the money there. So he couldn't take it away. That's, I, 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 how, I, I did not know that. It would be interesting to find out when they started doing all that other stuff. Well, I know that I know with uh, President David Schmidley, because this is what I wrote in the civil complaint of the lawsuit. When when David Schmidley became president, he had a grand vision of basically turning the Lobo Club into this kind of separate corporate like, you know, mono, you know, monolithic monster and. Not not just for athletics, mind you, for the whole thing, and that was really where it began transitioning out of this mom and pop operation that was done at the university. I I can't remember the woman's name, but there was some longtime steward of the Lobo Club uh, into this again into this corporation like thing with all this overhead and these VPs and I mean the 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 recent um, president of the UNM Foundation. Uh, just announced his retirement, which seemed. Oh, I know that. I'm yeah. sure you had something to do with that. <laughs> I, I, I like to think I'm, I'm, I'm putting pressure on all of them, but I mean, he, he's retiring with a, with a annual compensation package that rivals the University of New Mexico's, pre, you know, the UNM president's compensation package. This thing good is just. Good old boys give it all to good old boys. That's that's the name of the game, right? Yeah. Right. Well. Look, I um I did I didn't know about the uh I didn't know about the uh the history of of you and and of, of the women's and the minor sports and and how the uh, UNM Foundation became a 
or was a safe haven for that but it's it's certainly outgrown it's outgrown that role by by uh by a magnitude of something but uh in any yeah. event we we will we will see what we will see what ultimately happens to the foundation um well look I, linda I, I appreciate all the time um I, I find you to be a very interesting person and somebody you know these things as history tends to do uh keep repeating themselves and once again we're we're in a, a discussion about title nine and sports cutting and fiscal responsibility and 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 who's responsible for all this stuff i i feel like that's the uh the, the song that never ends but um i thank you for all your time today one more thing i read uh the stuff you put out with the economist and uh it was very interesting i don't understand all of it but i agree with some of it that that yeah i i felt the same way that tends to be me with uh with with people who are uh, in the math in the math sciences i i don't exactly understand everything but i I get the gist of it, and, and I, um, yeah, I, I thought it was a very interesting thing, and I thought it was interesting that Andy Schwartz, is the, is the gentleman's name, took, a, took up this uh, kind of extracurricular interest in, in UNM's situation. I agree. So nice talking to you, Daniel. You, you too, Linda. Take care, and uh, we'll be in touch. Okay, bye-bye. So, there you have it. I'd again like to thank my guest, Linda Estes, for her time. You can find an accompanying story to this podcast and all of my Lobo-related content at nmfishbowl.com. You can send me questions or comments to editor at nmfishbowl.com, or you can accuse me of acting out a childhood revenge fantasy by tweeting to me at nmfishbowl.com, all one word. I'm pleased to announce that the podcast is now available on iTunes, if you head over there, please like and subscribe. Some additional housekeeping to note, I am still waiting to hear back on my podcast invitations to UNM Athletic Director Eddie Nunez and School President Garnett Stokes. While I wait, I'm delighted by the slate of outstanding upcoming guests. The plan going forward will be to do one of these each week to be dropped in the early portions of the week. The delightful ditty you are hearing in the background comes from the Freak Fandango Orchestra and their song, Requiem for a Fish. As always, I appreciate that you have lent me your ears, and I hope that you join me the next time. Until then, I'm Daniel Libet. <laughs>